man. Be exalted. That is the one thing I love about that song is, is the thought that Christ isn't just, like, it's easy to exalt him while you're corporately here amongst your brothers and sisters. But it's another thing when you get home and, and hell has broken loose in your house and finances is all over the place. Can you still exalt Christ even in those hard, hard moments? Uh, if you're new here, one of the things you'll pick up about our church is that we are passionate about Jesus Christ. One of our core, not just our core, but our main conviction as a church is to see Jesus Christ uh, central in all of our life. And when I say central, I say it all the time. That doesn't mean we want to see Christ as uh, the first or the head of our life, meaning we don't want him to be the first because then he's a check off the list and then we go on to two, three, and four. But we believe that Jesus is the whole list. He's just everything. He's everything that we are. He's everything that we do. And so we like to make a lot of noise about Jesus. And we do that in a few ways through song. We do that through communion. Do that through the preached word of God. Well, I am excited to be back with you. Um, I missed you guys deeply as I was uh, away last week, but I was pretty confident that you were in good hands with Pastor Charlie Mitchell. Did you guys enjoy Pastor Mitchell last week? Amen. He is doing an amazing work in, uh, in Baltimore, and I ask that you, guys, uh, that you guys would just commit some time to pray for, for him and the work that they're doing. They're at that beginning stages of starting the church, which is always a, a very hard stage to get things going. So grateful for him and, and the work that they're doing. Um, also, man, I just want to publicly express my gratitude and thanksgiving to you as a church for allowing me uh, moments to be out of the pulpit, and uh, sometimes ministry calls uh, for me to go to different partner churches or churches we're connected with and preach. And it's a great opportunity to preach the gospel in a different context, in a different part of the, of the country. And so I'm grateful that you guys allow that. Uh, listen, before we dive into the word of God, I, I really wanted to press to you guys a deep need that our church has. Um, and, I, and I wanted to present it to you because, you know, it's easy for us as a church to continue to just do things but it's another thing if I invite you guys in to partake into investing into it. And so what do I mean by that? Um, one of the other convictions of our church is that we are a church that is passionate about the community. Um, in fact, our mission statement says that we exist to join Jesus and his mission. And then the, here's the community to redeem our city. We want to see Jesus work throughout our city. And so there's a few ways that we do that here. We do that through city renewal. Uh, we want to invest into the city to where we see the city flourish. That's Jeremiah 29. Uh, seek the welfare of the city, for in its welfare you'll find your own. And so we believe as a church that we want to be about city renewal, but we also want to be about praying for the city. So we'll typically do prayer walks. We'll ask you guys to scatter and pray in the neighborhoods that you live in. But also the third thing that we we genuinely like to do is just evangelize and uh, really do like a city blitz to where we are just in the community and we're being salt and light in the community. And so we do that a few different ways. We do that collectively. So Thanksgiving last year, we invited the community to come free of charge, come get food. But we didn't say pick up food and go home. We said pick up food and we had tables spread out to where you sat down and we got to engage and talk to people. And we, so we do that quite often. There's two summer outreaches that we're doing this summer. And these two summer outreaches are, uh, are big on our heart. One of the things that happens with vision is vision can be cast, but if it's not resourced by God's people, the vision tends to like linger off. So there's two important um, 
outreaches that we want to do this summer. And I'm asking that you guys would consider responding by giving towards these two outreaches. The first is uh, VBS. So we talked about it. Vacation Bible School, for those of you who don't know, we're inviting kids from 6 to 13, that age range, to come in and literally they have, uh, they'll have breakfast provided, they'll have, they'll have lunch provided. We're having them from 9 a.m. to 3 a.m. If that's you, drop your kid off, drop your friend's kid off, drop your cousin's kid off, 9 to 3, and we'll take care of them. And it's not just romper room. We're not running around doing nothing, but we'll be engaging them with the gospel message of Jesus Christ, and uh, also having a good time as well. So it's not just a Bible study from 9 to 3, but we'll be doing different events and being out in the community, taking them to the park, and just trying to invest into our youth. Never underestimate the power of a young mind. So we want to get the, the gospel infused in them at an early, at a young, young age. And so um, in order to pull our VBS off, it's going to cost us, after we did our budget, it's going to cost us around $2,000. Now, some of you can write that check if you can, praise God for you. Uh, but we're asking that you guys would consider giving towards that. So here, here's how it's going to work. In three weeks, VBS will start. And so we need to raise $2,000 before our VBS starts in three weeks. I am confident that we can do that. Um, and that will go to just making sure that we have the supplies needed for the kids and the food is ready for the kids. The space is prepared for the kids. We're going to make it cool when they walk in. Uh, it's not going to feel like a church. They walk in, it's going to feel like something inviting, and they'll uh, be able to be engaged. So $2,000 is what we're looking to raise within the next three weeks. The second outreach we're doing is at the end of the summer. I think it's August 30th, whatever that last Saturday of August is. It's kind of a, a back-to-school outreach, but it's a block party. And so what we're doing is we're doing, I mean, literally free haircuts. We're doing uh, free face painting. We'll have food. Y'all know we're going to have some food. We're going to pull the grills out. We're going to have DJ. We're gonna, I mean, we're going to have a, a station for like a prayer station for people to come and pray. We're going to engage the neighbors. This is for the neighbors. So we're going to just tell everybody what we're doing, have them come out in a good way for us to build some common ground and build some relationship. In order for us to pull that off, that is going to cost us around $6,500. Again, these are very tightly. This isn't loose spending, uh, but this is a, a tight budget that we're trying to squeeze as much as possible in. And so we're trying to total raise $8,500 before the end of summer. And so if you're in here and you're going, oh, here we go. I knew he was going to ask for money. Uh, listen, keep your money. Where I would ask that you just come. But those of you who have been moved by the gospel, I mean, that, that is, I mean that's what the gospel is, is sacrificial giving. At the essence of the gospel is God sending his very best. He didn't send his second best, but he gave his all. And so I'm, I'm asking, you guys have been generous to our church uh, many of you are givers, and thank you for responding in such a way uh, that you do give of your resources, and I know it's sacrificial. I'm asking that you would just sacrifice a little bit more for the summer. Again, none of this is coming to me. In fact, I went on the link this morning and made my contribution. Not a dime is going to me. All of it's going in and right back out into the community. So if you would respond to that, uh, that would be greatly appreciated. I just want to put a text here, Second Corinthians 9, 7. Uh, it says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Then it says, God loves a cheerful giver. So what would it look like for us to give cheerfully to the work of the Lord? Amen? All right. Uh, if you guys can grab those Bibles, we'll be in 1 Peter 3. I am excited, anxious, and 
um, a little eager to get back into the book of 1 Peter. For those of you who are new to our church, we've been going through all of the book of 1 Peter. When I say that, I mean literally line by line, verse by verse. It's five chapters. We polished off first, uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2. We are now in chapter Three, um, and we, we've been literally trying to digest the, the good with the bad. So what do I mean by that? The, the verses that are easy to digest and then the verses that are hard to digest. Whenever you're going through a book of the Bible, it's almost like when you were younger and, you know, with your mama's cooking. Your mama makes some things that you love to eat, right? She'd pop a pizza in the oven or something. She'd make some hamburgers. You love that stuff. But when you were a kid, you typically didn't like when she made broccoli and spinach, uh, but whenever you go through a book of the Bible, it typically gives you both. And so what I love about Peter is Peter really does give us a well-balanced meal. And today he's going to hit us hard. He's going to hit us on husbands and wives. So he's going to talk about relationships. Now, if you are married in here, I pray that you would press into the text. If you are not married in here, I pray that you would press into the text. Because it's, it's, it's good for both, both uh, singles and for marriage. There's several people in here that are engaged. And, and so I, I am, uh, I'm praying that you would, would dial in. Typically, whenever we go into marriage as singles, we, we typically have faulty expectations of what marriage really is. I think Peter is going to really, really do well at defining it for us. Pick me up in verse number one. First Peter three, verse number one, it says this, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not believe the word or some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, verse number three, do not let your adorning adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold and jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Verse five. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Circle this person's word as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Verse seven. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I simply want to preach today from the topic entitled Marriage Goals. Marriage Goals. Let's pray. Father, we do need you today. Uh, Thank you for your word. Thank you for governing our lives by your word. Help us. Uh, today to to respond well to your word. And and that response sometimes is encouragement and is joy, but sometimes that response is ouch and conviction. And I pray that you would prick at our hearts. One of the things I love most, Lord, about your word is that one single scripture can be read and heard and applied to different aspects of our lives in this room. And the reality is some marriages walked in here rocky. Some marriages walked in here ready to give up. Some singles walked in here with a faulty expectation of what marriage is. Some young lady is expecting something different from marriage. Some young man is expecting something different from a future spouse. And I pray that today you would crystallize the idea of what is a marriage and what is a marriage supposed to be. Unfortunately, the world does not help us to understand what marriage is. But it was instituted by you. You were the first one to give a bride away. And I pray that today that you would challenge us in a great way. 
I pray that Jesus would be the focus of the text. I pray that Jesus would be honored. And as we talk about marriage, may we consider the relationship that Jesus had with his bride, the church. So get at us today, Lord, by Peter's words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Marriage goals. A few weeks ago at the conclusion of our fourth Wednesday night prayer and Bible study, uh, one of our young ladies got engaged. Yeah, y'all can go ahead and give it up. Amen. Janelle Drysdale. Raise your hand, Janelle. Amen. Soon to be Janelle Miller. Excited about that. She got engaged. And, you know, when, you know, we were all standing around. I don't know if you guys have saw the videos, but we were all standing around. All of us were like overjoyed. I was so overjoyed. All of us, you know how we do. We're going to capture the moment. We're not going to let, it ain't real unless we, you know, put it on the gram. So, so, you know, we did Insta stories. We did Facebook lives. We did Snapchats. I mean, we, I mean, we celebrated and we were excited to see it. And, you know, I was excited really for two reasons. Number one, I was excited because I got to watch Janelle walk through singleness over the last couple of years, at least the last couple of years I've known her. I got to watch her walk through singleness as a godly woman. And, you know, to see that was very overwhelming for me. But the second reason I was overly excited was because marriage isn't honored in our world. Marriage isn't honored in our culture. To see, to, so to see two young, committed Jesus lovers say, we're going to get have a commitment to each other and actually walk through life together is a huge blessing. According to Time Magazine, the divorce rate is still hovering around 50%. Now, I know we've gotten used to that number, but consider the fact that one out of every two marriages ends in divorce. One out of every two. And unfortunately, I wish I could say that the world's statistics were better, or the church's statistics were better, but in some parts of the country, Christians' divorce rate is higher than the world's divorce rate. So we haven't been a good example of this. And I believe that that is why people are opting out of getting marriage, of getting married. Cohabitation is on the rise. People are saying, why should I get married if one out of every two marriages ends in divorce? Why should I do that? If you put that stat on any, put that stat on travel. If one out of every two planes crashed, would you fly? I doubt if you would fly. I know I wouldn't fly. So why do we expect people to get married when they're looking at the divorce rate? They're reading Time magazine and seeing one out of every two marriages fail. The problem is we have a major problem within our culture. But I, I don't want to get it twisted. I, I don't want you to think that we have a worse crisis on our hands than Peter had during his time. Trust me. The time that Peter is writing this letter, marriages were out of control. Women were not valued. Men would literally divorce women for the pettiest stuff, and there's nothing a woman could do about it. And see, nowadays, you know, you can sign you a little prenup, you can get you a little money. Back in the day, when you were divorced, you were kicked out on the street. And men often kicked women out. It, which, it makes it interesting when you look at the woman at the well, when Jesus meets the woman at the well, and she says, you know, he says the word, the woman, the husband you're with isn't really your husband. She was married several times. I'm willing to bet, and I, I don't want to add to the text, but I'm willing to bet based on the culture that several husbands just got tired of her, said, you're done. We're, we're done with you. And that was a huge problem. Infidelity, infidelity was a huge problem. Men would parade their side chicks around, and there's nothing a wife could do about it. Why? Because she was supposed to be submissive and quiet. It's culture time. And so 
We don't have a worse crisis on our hands. Nevertheless, we have a crisis. And what Peter does well in our text is he doesn't skate around this issue like we do. He addresses it head on. So he addresses it by writing a letter. Why don't you pick me back up in verse number one? I'm going to read the verse, but I want to highlight two words and deal with two words in that text. Verse number one says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Lifting up the first part of that, likewise, wives, be subject. I don't know if you guys have picked up on, if you've been here over the last several weeks, I don't know if you've picked up on this theme that Peter has been going through. Over and over again, Peter has been saying, be subject. Look back at chapter 2, verse 13. What did he say? He said, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to emperors as supreme or whether to governors. And what makes that interesting is Peter tells us to be subject to the emperor, knowing that the emperor is Emperor Nero, which is a wicked emperor. And he says, be subject. Subject to evil governors. And then if you, you fast forward down in chapter 2 to verse number 18, he says it again. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but to the unjust. Okay, so you just told me to submit to the emperor, which was wicked. You so, told me to submit to governors, which typically were wicked. And now you're telling me to submit to unjust bosses. Notice that verse doesn't say just submit to any boss. It says to the good, the gentle, and the unjust. So he's been hammering us with this idea of being subject and being subject lends itself to submission. And now the idea of what he's presenting to us is if I told you to be submissive to the government, I told you to be submissive to the unjust bosses or masters or leaders. How much more should you be submissive to a husband? But here's what the text presents. Not just a husband, an unbelieving husband. Hard pill. Now, Pastor, I get it. I understand. I, I hear you. But I can be submissive to a husband that loves Jesus. I understand that. But you're not going to tell me to be submissive to a husband that doesn't under, under know Jesus, doesn't understand the gospel. I'm not telling you that. Peter is telling us. And we're going to unpack that. Let me tell you what he's not saying. He is not giving a stamp of approval. Hear me, young ladies. He is not giving a stamp of, stamp of approval to marry an unbeliever. He is not saying that. I want to be very, very clear because, you know, that's what we'll do. We'll say, I like his abs. He got some good biceps. Whether he knows Jesus or not, he loves me. Listen, he can't possibly love you like he should love you if he doesn't love Jesus. And so I'm telling you now, Peter is not endorsing us to walk into a situation in which we are um, blinded by the fact that the person doesn't. When I do marriage counseling, the first question I ask is, are you both believers? I need to know that you've submitted your life because it doesn't make sense. Amos 3.3, how can two walk together? Unless they agree. So it's important for us to, to be in relationship with believers and believers. So Peter is not addressing that. He is addressing a very, very specific problem during this time. What was happening during this time is wives usually worshiped the gods of their husbands. But Christianity was flourishing in such a way that the gospel was impacting wives and husbands weren't converting. What do I do in that situation? So, Peter, that's what I love about the Bible. The Bible typically addresses every life situation. 
full of scandals. The gospel in and of itself is a scandal. And so he's saying to us here, he's saying, listen, I'm not saying marry an unbeliever. I'm saying if you both get married, you both haven't trusted Jesus. One of you trusts Jesus. In our text today, he says, wives, you trust Jesus, but your husband hasn't converted. He does not say be disrespectful. He does not say go crazy. He does not say I ain't washing your clothes. He says, submit, be subject. Here's also what he's not saying. He's not saying be subject or submissive towards sin. That's very important to pick up. Peter is not saying that because the ultimate relationship, even outside of a marriage, is your relationship with God. Period. And so he's not saying, listen, be submissive to the point where you go down a path of sin. No, nothing. Even when you think about government, he told us to be subject to the governors and to the emperor. But that doesn't mean that I have to be subject to the point where it causes me to sin. So he's not saying that here with husbands and wives as well. What he's pointing out is his great concern. I love this for the husband's soul. That's what he's pointing out here. The fact that he's telling her that her conduct can win her husband over. He's concerned about the husband. And so what, what, I think one of the applications we can grab is we need a bigger vision for marriage than just our happiness. We need to realize that our marriages are an evangelistic tool to see people that don't know Jesus meet Jesus. Here's a really rhetorical question. Can someone from the outside or inside your marriage find Jesus because of your conduct? Can people look at your marriage and say, I see the gospel. Philippians 1:27. only let your manner of life be counted worthy of the gospel. I see the gospel on that person. Can someone look at our marriages and honestly say that how we respond, how we forgive or do we look like everybody else? So Peter is saying, listen, be subject. Now, I got to be careful here again, because I, I, I don't want to push and breathe this thing in here that we're saying be submissive, even in a toxic, sinful marriage. I'm not saying that. There, there are some portions of marriage that can be so unhealthy that I will tell a wife, you need to run. Abuse is one. If I sit across from a young lady that says, I was abused last night, she got a black eye and a busted lip, I'm going to pray, and then the second thing I'm doing is calling the cops. It's just that simple. So he's not saying be submissive at the expense of your health. He's not saying be submissive at the expense of your emotional health, verbal abuse. He's not saying be submissive if the husband is walking around again with a side chick saying, you just stay at home. This is this is my girl. That's a problem. That's toxic. You need to run. You need to seek help. And so he's not saying that, but he is being very he what he's saying is your conduct. Even in that is important. How you respond are you going to show the gospel? Is vengeance going to be yours? Or are you going to leave it up to the Lord? And so he's pressing us here. And so what he says is you can win your husband, even that husband that's parading around with another girl. That husband can be one. And I love this. The text presents it how he can be one. He can be one. Brothers, don't say amen here. This is the only time I do not say amen here. Look at this. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some don't obey the word, meaning they're not believers, they may be one. Here it is without a word. Don't say amen, brothers. Your husband can be one, according to Peter, without even a word. 
practical application. Some of you, I mean, you, you argue and nag too much. When are you going to get saved? When are you going to come to church? How about your conduct represents Jesus in such a way that they want to come? that they want to be a part, that they want to find out who is this Jesus that you keep talking about? Who is this Jesus that you have changed your worldview and the things you used to like you don't like anymore? Who is that Jesus? Does your life represent that? So he's showing us here. He's saying, listen, don't walk around the house and be fighting and be quarrelsome. Here's some scriptures for you. Proverbs 27, 15. If you don't like this one, you, you can rip it out of your Bible. Um, but it's going to be in another Bible, so it doesn't matter anyway. <laughs> Proverbs twenty-seven fifteen says this. A quarrelsome wife is as annoying as a constant drip on a rainy day. Proverbs 21, verse 9. I love this one. I don't love it. I, I do love it. Proverbs 21, verse number 9 says, It is better to live on the corner of a roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Ladies, you may think that you are winning your man by keep arguing, but what you're doing is you're having your man physically in the house, but his, house, his heart is on the roof. His heart is outside the house because you keep nagging. And so the scripture says, no, listen, you actually can win him without even saying a word. Uh, in 2006, I told my wife that I wanted to go back to school. I had no clue I went, why I wanted to go back to school for Bible. I had no aspirations for ministry, had no aspirations for planting the church. I was actually working at Verizon Wireless in the corporate office and doing really well by God's grace. And told my wife, I want to go back to school for Bible. I have no clue why. Here's the school I want to go to, Philadelphia Biblical University. It's in uh, the suburbs of Philly. I want to go back to the school. Well, I'm a procrastinator, so a year goes by, and that whole year, my wife is like, are you, well, when are you going back to school? You said you want to go back to school. When are you going back to school? And then she realized at some point that she can win me over without a word, and she stopped asking me about school. She's so wise. She started to plant little things around the house about the school. So I'd go to bed, and there'd be a little PBU, uh, little application on the nightstand. I'd be like, where does this just conveniently happen to show up? <laughs> I go in the refrigerator, get me some milk from my Honey Nut Cheerios, and there'd be a little brochure of the school on the, on the refrigerator. Well, it worked because in 2012, I graduated my degree in Bible with a concentration on discipleship counseling because she won me over without a word. Now, she didn't win me over to the Lord. So I'm not saying that, but what the scripture is showing us is that you can win your husband with the Holy Spirit using you without even, without even saying a word. By your conduct is what the scripture is going to tell us. Now, pastor, you got to give me an example. I have, I have never seen that. I need to see because I got to speak my mind. I'm not saying you can't give a contradictory statement. In fact, I'm at my best when my wife contradicts me. When my wife says and challenges me, I'm at my best. So wives, please challenge your husband. But the scripture is clear that you can win a non-believing husband simply by your conduct without a word. Look at the book of Esther. You don't have to turn there now. I'll turn there real quick. The book of Esther is a prime example of a female that won over not just her husband's favor, but saved an entire nation. Hear me without a word. Without uttering a word, Esther saved an entire nation. Now, she's going to speak later on, but initially, when she gets the initial request, she doesn't say anything. Let me prove that to you. Just to give you context, the book of Esther is... 
Queen Esther is a, uh, she was a, a young Jew and the king of Persia sought out virgins that he could marry simply because he didn't like his first wife. I mean, it's, he told his first wife, I kid you not, he was having a party. He told his first wife that she's beautiful and that he wanted to parade her beauty around. So you come on in here and show everybody how beautiful you was. Well, Queen Vashti wasn't hearing that. She said, I am not going in there. And to disobey the king is a, it's treason. And so he got rid of his first wife. The text really doesn't say what he did with her, but he got rid of his first wife and found another wife. And the second wife he found was Queen Esther. A Jew in that is now the queen of Persia. Understand what's going on here. So one of the guys in the king's court decided that he didn't like the Jews. And he was going to put this plan together, this plot together to kill off all the Jews, including his wife, including the king's wife. And so he put this plan together and Queen Esther found out about the plan. And when she found out about the plan, some Jews, Mordecai, some Jews were saying, go into the king. That's your husband. Go into his court and tell him about the plan. He doesn't know. Go tell him about it. Well, she's so wise. You know what she did? She did not bombard him. She did not walk in there going, they trying to kill all the Jews. She did not do that. You know what she did? Because she would have been, you know, you couldn't do that. You can't. You were not allowed to walk in the king's presence unless you were summoned. So she couldn't walk up in there. So you know what she did? She sent word back to the Jews to fast and pray. Chapter four, she said, go fast and pray. And then she didn't tell them to do it. She didn't do it. She said, I'm going to get my servants to go fast and pray. Bible says that she went and she fasted and she prayed. Look what happens. Verse number one of chapter five says, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robe and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarter while he was sitting on his royal throne. Again, that was unheard of. We read that and think that that's normal. You're not allowed. You would die for something like that. But the Bible says she stood in the, in the king's palace in front of the king's quarter while the king was sitting on the royal throne inside the throne room opposite to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, look, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther his golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther reproached it and touched the tip of the scepter. Verse three. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even up to half my kingdom. She got offered to her up to half the kingdom and hasn't said a word yet. She won the favor of her husband, not because she looked so great, not because she put a royal robe on. She won the favor of her husband because in chapter four, she was a godly woman and fasted. She was a godly woman and she prayed. And so Queen Esther didn't just win her husband. If you read the rest of the text, and I, I would tell you, I mean, I would, I would suggest that you read it. The rest of it will tell us that the entire nation got saved because of a godly woman. Women, you have an entire nation gets saved. You certainly can save that non-believing man in your house. So go back to first Peter. It tells us, listen, you can win him over without a word, without a word, without a word. I do not have to nag him. I can simply live the gospel out in such a way that it is encouraging for him. Jesus did this. Jesus saved you without a word. Isaiah 53, verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Jesus went to the cross as a humble lamb and didn't say a word. And all of his people got saved. And so I want to be very clear that you can be submissive. You can do all of these things and still win your husband. Text tells us by your pure conduct. Verse number two, 
When he sees your respectful and pure conduct. I want to highlight that word respectful. If there's one thing that every single man needs, whether he's a believer or not, is respect. That's the one thing every man needs. Aretha Franklin said it best. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Find out what it means to me. Take care of TCB. I know some of y'all want to go, sock it to me, sock it to me. I almost did it. Y'all know I love to put a little song in there. Listen, even though Aretha Franklin sang that song, you know she didn't write it, right? So it's not like, see, Aretha Franklin says she wanted respect. A man by the name of Otis Ray Redding wrote the song. I'm telling you, men desire. There's a deep thing inside of every single man to be respected. Again, this doesn't mean that you can't offer a contradictory statement. But every man will tell you is how you say it. Every man will tell you. And so, yes, there is a need for men to be respected. And ladies, relax. When we get to verse number seven, there's a deep need for you guys as well. But in verse number two, it's clear. Every man wants to be respected and you respected and you can win your husband by your respectful conduct. Listen, be a faithful wife. Even with that ungodly man in the house, be a faithful wife. Unless there's, unless there's grounds that, that, again, that take it too far for you, if not, be a submissive wife. If you love that man, you love him so much that you want to see his soul saved. The Bible tells us, it says, verse number two, you can win him over by your, by your respectful conduct, your respectful and your pure conduct. Verse number three, I love verse three. Do not let your adorning, look at the, the, this word is used in verse three and verse number four. Do not let your adorning, be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of golden jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your, here it is again, adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a, and a quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I love this word adornment, and it's used two times. An adornment, the, the New Testament was written in a language called Greek, and the adornment literally means cosmos. It's where we get our words cosmetic. It means to decorate. Peter is saying, don't decorate the outside and the inside be ugly. He's actually reversing it. He's putting to, for us perspective. He's saying, no, the, your adorning should be on the inside. Women, you do know like the outside, you're all of us in this room, but women, you do know that you are decaying every day. Every day our bodies are decaying. I don't care how much Pilates you do, how much spinach you eat. I don't care if you're non-GMO, gluten-free. Your body is decaying. You know what's not decaying? The inside, the inner heart, that inner beauty. And so Peter is saying here, he's putting it in perspective, listen, don't focus so much on the outside. And the women in this time, just to keep in context, the women of Peter's time of writing this, Peter wrote in in, um, in 60 to 65 AD, he wrote this letter, 1 Peter, around that time. And around that time, there was a huge pressure for women to look beautiful, just like our culture today. I mean, I can't even walk into the store without realizing how much our culture desires for women to look beautiful. I was hanging out with my wife down in Soho earlier this week, and we went to the Zara down there. There's two huge sections to get into Zara. When you walk into Zara, the first thing you walk into is the women's section. The whole floor is the one. You got two sections. The whole floor is the women's section. You take the escalator upstairs. The second floor, all women's section and a little bit of a kid's section. You want to find the men's section? It's in the basement. 
I'm not kidding. It's in the basement, and it's a small little place, and they got better cells upstairs. I'm not, I'm not mad. I'm just saying. Downstairs in the basement is where they put the men's stuff. Same thing. You go to a department store. You go to a department store. In order to get to the men's section, you got to walk past the Mac section, the Bobby Brown uh, makeup section, the women's perfume, the women's shoes. And God knows the women's shoe section never ends. You just, it's miles and miles and miles of shoes. And you just keep walking. You get to the women's clothing. Oh, and then you got the women's hair care products and the women's skin products. And finally, you get to the men's section. It's probably in the basement. And it's a small little section. Our culture is obsessed with the outward adorning of our women. Peter is pushing, just like in his culture was. He's pushing. Listen, yes, it's okay. Now, what he's not saying, women, he's not saying to let yourself go. He's not saying that. He is not presenting to us a theology where he's like, I ain't ever get my hair done. You want to take me like I am? Listen, listen, ladies, that's not what he's saying. He's putting priority here. He's saying, listen, the inside is way more. He's putting the, the emphasis on the internal. And he does so by saying the braiding of hair, gold jewelry, fine clothes, which is interesting that he divided the three. We nowadays, we're so obsessed with it. The braiding of hair and the gold jewelry is the same thing nowadays. I just found out about hair jewelry. I didn't know anything about hair jewelry. I found out that you could put hair jewelry in. I love it. I think it's nice. But I'm looking, ladies are like, do I got some hair jewelry on today? <laughs> we mixed it together, but he's very, very clear. Now, he's not saying don't get your hair braided. He's saying, don't be fine on the outside and ugly on the inside. If you're fine on the outside, you better be fine on the inside. And brothers, let me just tell you, if you're a single dude in here, don't just be looking at the outside. You need to sit down, take her out, you pay for the meal, and you need to hear her Jesus. I'm serious. Brothers, don't mess around, man. Your life will be messed up if you're just looking at fine outside that China. Y'all know where I'm going with that. Mess you up, man. Don't look at that. One of our young ladies here at the church, one of our young ladies here at the church does, she does hair. She braids hair. And I overheard her, Janelle Sinius, that did our welcome. I overheard her telling one of the other young ladies that she prays before she, before she does hair. And um, I was interested in that. I was like, wow, I never, I never considered like that to actually be a mission field. And, you know, ministry can take place in the barbershops and salons. And when you sit, especially when y'all getting your hair braided for six to ten hours. First of all, you got to pray when you about to go into battle for six to ten hours. So I, told, I, I hit Janelle up this week. I, I shot her a text and said, man, I'm, I'm working through First Peter, and I really need to know, how do you infuse the gospel in what you, did, what you do? And she just started spitting off example after example. Women that, she, that have told her 10 hours, I'm sure you can get your whole life in in 10 hours. <laughs> Women that have told her about marital issues, and she got to minister to that. Women that have told her uh, about their belief, and she got to share the gospel with them. She told me an example of a young lady. She stopped the hair and started praying. So hear me. Braiding of hair is not evil, but it's evil when that is the that's the goal is the braiding of hair. Back in the day when they used to, you know, when he talks about braiding of hair, they would do it for seductive reasons. They would braid their hair in a way that was seducing to other men. So Peter is pushing hard against a very cultural thing that he's going through. He's saying, listen, don't let your adorning be on the outside, but let it be also on the inside. Let's keep going. Verse number five. Verse number five says, 
For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Now he's going to give us an example of a godly, quiet wife. Watch what he says in verse number six. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. I was baffled when I got to verse number six. And the reason I was baffled is because when Peter wanted to give us an example of a godly woman, he reaches back into the Old Testament and finds Sarah. Now, why is that amusing to me? Because, yes, Sarah was a godly woman, but Sarah got out of pocket multiple times. Like, y'all remember, this is the same Sarah in Genesis chapter 16 that stepped out ahead of God. God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, he says, look up at the stars. I'm going to out, your kids are going to outnumber the stars. And she's now 90 years old, doesn't have one kid. And so she gets a little worried about that. She decides to step out of, uh, ahead of God. And what does she do? She gets her servant, Hagar, to sleep with Abraham, her husband, so that he could, she could bear a child for her. Same Sarah in Genesis chapter 19 that laughs at the angel when she overhears the angel saying to her husband, your wife is 90 years old. Yes, she's barren and your body is good as dead, but you're going to have a child. Sarah's going to get pregnant. She laughed. The same Sarah that laughed in unbelief. The New Testament pulls her in as an example. Why is that important? Because I do not want to birth in this room this idea that you are going to be a perfect wife. Sarah was not a perfect wife. You will make mistakes as a wife. But notice something. The example he gives us is a young lady in the Old Testament that let her husband sleep with the side chick. And she's viewed as a godly and a pure wife. So trust me, the mistakes you've made in your marriage is okay. Sarah's viewed as a, as a good example for us. So Peter decides to give us one. He says, listen, look at Sarah. She's a Sufficient example of what a godly wife is, despite the fact Genesis 16, she messed up. Despite the fact she was acting trifling in Genesis 19, she's still a good example. And you in this room, don't underestimate the fact that you are a good example. Your marriage can be a good example, despite the fact that you've made mistakes. Now, I'm not saying make mistakes and just keep making them. But what I am saying is if you have made mistakes, you're still a good example. Now, I don't know if you've picked this up. But the last six verses have been for the women. It's almost like God is like, brothers, I can't give y'all too much. I got to give y'all one verse. Too many instructions, we get messed up. So I'm going to give y'all one verse. Six verses for the ladies. One verse for the man. Look at what verse number uh, seven says. Gabe, can you grab me those two cups out of, the, uh, out of the office? This way? Oh, you got them. All right. Verse number seven. Likewise, husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. I want to highlight this word, showing honor. What we do is reread that verse, and I don't know if if your mind went there. We read that verse, and we're automatically like, what are you going to say about the weaker vessel? But the reality is we can't run past the fact that Peter just told men during the first century to honor their wives, a, a culture that did not honor women. He's saying in the church, you should honor your wife. And if there's one thing that gets my blood boiling, it's men that do not honor their wives. You will be disqualified from any leadership in this church if you do not honor your wife. When I was growing up, they, I used to have china cabinets. I don't, you ever, anybody ever had a china cabinet in their house? 
You know, you, you didn't eat off that. You, you, you didn't eat off that. You ate off the stuff in the cabinet, but in the China cabinet, you didn't eat off that. I would have never found this in, in, the, in the China cabinet. This is a little, you know, I don't know if this was a McFlurry. This is something Brad was drinking this morning. I asked him for the cup. It's washed out. Um, <laughs> but you wouldn't find this in the China cabinet. So he says, this is what Peter says. He says, honor your wife as the weaker vessel. Weaker vessel doesn't mean I dominate her. Weaker vessel f- means I honor her. I treat her as fragile. This is, I mean, I could bend this, you know, it ain't nothing gonna happen. I could bang this and it's okay. It ain't nothing gonna happen. I can still drink out of it, you know, provided I don't have any holes in it now. I, it's still good. It still can be used. But this is, this is, this is nothing. When it says treat her as the weaker vessel, yeah, it might be talking about physical strength. But here's what you can conclude from it. This is a weaker vessel. See, this ain't in the China cabinet. And the problem is we're treating our women as this when we should be treating them as this. Young ladies that are not married in here, if you're a single in here, please hear me. If you think that he's treating you like this when you're dating and he'll treat you like this when you're married, you got it wrong. If he treats you like this now, he's going to treat you like this later. And the best way that you can find out which one of these you are in his world is to get brothers around him. Because we don't look at relationships objectively. The longer we're in the relationship, the more in love we are. It doesn't matter how he treats me. He loves me. But you need to get some brothers around because what godly men will do after we see him, we can tell you which one you are, which one he views you as. You're this. How does he view you? And so what happens is when Peter is saying, treat, she's the honor her as the weaker vessel. Honor literally means to put on display. That's what it means in the Greek. Put her on display. That same shoe fetish you have, brothers. I'm not even that same drive you have for your fantasy football league. You should treat your wife more than this. I can bang this. I can't bang this because I honor this. This is fragile. This is more expensive. This costs more than this. So don't let men treat you like this. Why is this important that Peter is giving us this idea? This idea over the last seven verses of marriage. Why is this important? Why does it even matter? Like, talk to us about the government. Talk to us about unjust bosses. Why do you care about marriages? Because nothing else, no other relationship in your life shows us the gospel more than your marriage. No other relationship. Like, if you read Ephesians chapter 5, read Ephesians chapter 5. I mean, at the end of chapter 5 of Ephesians, he says this. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ." Loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Sacrificially. He loved the church so much that he gave his life for it. Problem with us men is we're not sacrificing enough. Just as I said, every man in this room needs respect. Every woman in this room desires and should get honor from her man. She should be put on a pedestal. And your kids, if you have kids in this room, your kids should see you putting your wife on a pedestal. I went to, I had to preach at Jacksonville earlier this week, or last week, and we spent an extra couple of days there just hanging out on the, on the beach down there in Jacksonville, and we FaceTimed my boys, and my boys was, you know, like, why didn't you bring us? Why didn't you take us? I was like, it's simple. I love mommy more than I love you. <laughs> See you when I get back. The reality is, I want to show them that I, they're going to have wives one day. This verse will apply to my boys one day. I want them to see that mommy is valued. 
Mommy is this. Mommy is not this. And so when you see me treat her like that, you should treat a woman like that. Brothers, you have an opportunity to be an example to some young man. Ladies, you have an opportunity to be an example for some young lady. I simply want to end our time today by praying for every single marriage in this room. 